With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Um, super excited for, for today's podcast. Number one, because I have Mr. Alan Matheson from Golden Pair with me today. So always that's a good help uh, for, for any technical challenges that I generally uh, struggle with during these podcasts. Um, but two, we're talking about some of the, the more... Uh, nuanced, you know, kind of protocols uh, across, because I've got Kevin uh, Chan here with uh, Across, and, and it's it's so imperative that we're able to move currencies, tokens, or assets around the various blockchains. And so when we're kind of thinking about being in a crypto winter or wherever we sit today, um, you know, Bitcoin's right around 19,000 and doing its, doing its thing. Um, this is really the time to build the infrastructure and really make sure that the users as well as the other developers have the tools to be, to be building and, and scaling ready for the next bull market. Um, we certainly saw a lot of issues in the last bull for scaling um, and usability. Bridges were breaking left and right. Uh, happen you know every every couple of days um, and so with that I'm going to go ahead and I want to make sure to introduce uh, my co-host today Alan Matheson um, Alan you just want to give a quick background on yourself if that's okay sure guys thanks hi I'm a tech entrepreneur uh, built and sold a few different companies uh, around the world and uh, really saw crypto a number of years ago and couldn't get it out of my mind and here I am as a sort of crypto degen uh, founded a crypto hedge fund which deals in liquid uh, liquid tokens called uh, Golden Pair Capital. Uh, in fact, Kevin is uh, on our investment committee, so I've known had the pleasure of knowing Kevin for uh, for many years, and we have some uh, shared pursuits other than crypto degeneracy. Um, and really looking forward to uh, to this uh, this podcast. Fabulous, fabulous. Um, so, so Kevin, let's go before we get into uh, across and whatever you're working on. You know, your project that you're on today. Let's kind of go back and and what was your first kind of experience with blockchain cryptocurrency, and what kind of led you to to be where you are today? Um, yeah, I guess it goes back to when a good friend of mine um, who used to work for me uh, as a trader. Uh, so, I, I used to trade bonds at uh, Goldman Sachs and spent about 15 years doing that. Uh, 12 years of the time in, in, in New York. And I met a good friend there, um, and he was actually involved in, in that in the uh, in the space. And um, he ended up buying my my kids. I had two boys at the time, um, one Bitcoin, and uh, he just deposited. Or gave it was an email. He said to me as an email and tell me how to deposit it. And that was really how the curiosity kind of got stirred. And um, I started looking at it and asking a lot of questions about it and learning a lot more. And and that was actually the same person that um, um, brought me into um, uh, into DeFi a lot deeper. Uh, his name's Hart Lambert, and he's actually the, the founder of, um, of UMA, UMA. And it was probably not until 20... So he, he probably gave us uh, one Bitcoin in 2013, I would say. or And it was not until 2020 that I really got involved. It was very curious, always asking questions. And um, it was... It was during that uh, 
the beginning of that year where he started saying like he needed some help um, in this project. And I'd, I'd known about it and I'd, I'd been supporting it and helping it, but I didn't really know it deeply. And then once he, I was invited to kind of get a little deeper into this, uh, that's really when I kind of fell down that rabbit hole uh, and right into DeFi summer. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time to jump right in as soon as things are heating up and, and you know, but coming from a, a very TradFi, um, you know, background, how, how was it trying to retrain your brain to, you know, the thought of cryptocurrencies and, and the, the open ledger or the secure ledger of, of, of kind of blockchain tech overall? Right. I, I think it's, it's definitely a little overwhelming at first. And I think it's very intimidating. Um, you know, in, in the TradFi space, I'm very much, I would say I'm a, I'm a little quantitative, but not very much so. We trade a product. Um, U.S. government bonds. That's quite technical, and and it's it's very much uh, in the weeds, and, and you have to be very deep in the details. So I think that helped in some ways, but you know this was a much kind of deeper technology. Um, and I would say that um, the looking at the kind of like the pipes of the financial system, you you, you definitely appreciate the blockchain a lot more, um, and you kind of start to understand you know what blockchain was was achieving or what it's trying to accomplish. Um, so I think from that angle, it was very helpful. Um, but going into the space and working with other people, I'd say that you know you're definitely intimidated because you're like, I, I don't really know that much about coding. I, I you know I've got very basic kind of coding language. But you start to realize, like in the DeFi space, that that it goes both ways. You know, DeFi is is, is essentialized finance, so there is still a finance aspect of it. So I started realizing that when people were speaking to me, they were intimidated too because they were thinking, well, this guy must know a lot about finance, and I only know anything about coding. Um, so it was a really good marriage between the two, and you start like we start having a, a bigger respect for each other. Like the two different sides, like a tradfi side, and uh, and a kind of developer or like a computer science side. Um, so yeah, so I think that that really worked out well, and and that's why I, think I fell in love with that DeFi space because we could really both contribute in the same in the same ways. Yeah, you know the the what you guys are touching, you know, at UMA and, and, you know, we'll, we'll get into a cross here in a second, um, is something that, you know, right now is a massive lift for the TradFi system to do, um, to understand, you know, what something should be priced at, how are they, you know, accounting for those various metrics. Um, you understand that system, you know, much, much better than I do. And it is, you know, horribly inaccurate in the TradFi space, um, you know, with days, weeks, or months to get to settlements in some cases, which is the entire GameStop, uh, entire play altogether is that nobody knows how many shares are outstanding. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a problem with, um, just getting even in, even in, in like the, the blockchain space, there's a problem of just getting information and, and information accurately and, and quickly. Um, you know, a lot of what's appealing about say Ethereum is, is about smart contracts. Um, but at the end of the day, like, you know, if you want to settle that contract, you need the correct information to settle that contract. Um, and I think, you know, something like UMA, um, you know, I, you know, we can get deeper into it. It's, it's an optimistic Oracle where we could basically provide any information from the, from the, the actual blockchain or any information from, from the real world and use that to sell contracts. Uh, and I think it's, you know, I think it's, there's a lot of applications to it, but uh, it definitely solves a lot of problems that are already existing in, in the world or in the TradFi space. And do you think, you know, I mean, obviously you started your career in, in TradFi and you kind of uh, intimated that the transparency of blockchain, um, you know, it's, it's revolutionary 
considering that like, you know, Goldman Sachs is primarily a market maker. Um, how do you think that those things get reconciled over time? How will the banks choose to participate in in blockchain uh, if they, you know, if and when they start to come along, you know, institutional adoption? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways that um, DeFi disrupts um, TradFi. Um, I think the, the big thing is like decentralization and kind of removing the kind of the these strong powers, whether it be banks or exchanges, that basically dictate all the rules and control all the fees. Um, but I, I mean, there's there's still a huge hesitancy for the financial markets to kind of or the traditional financial markets to really adopt um, DeFi. And I think one of the big um, kind of block blockers would be the idea of like finality on the blockchain and the idea of, um, of no recourse. So, you know, on the blockchain, if, if, if a contract is settled, um, it's settled and it's final. There's no way of kind of going back in time and changing those terms or, 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 or making it more fair if something was, was off. Um, so there's like effectively no recourse. But in the TradFi world or in, the, in our regular world, you know, there's lawyers everywhere. You know, there's, if something goes wrong, um, so even though something settled after the fact or the market closed and this, this was the final settlement price, um, people can call on their lawyers and they could dispute it and they could, you know, they could, they could, um, you know, highlight any issues with it. And, and many times, you know, this is, this is how it works and, and things get changed. Um, so I do think that, you know, UMA or, or an optimistic Oracle kind of provides that kind of buffer um, from what we have, what, what we, what we have right now in, in the, in the DeFi space where, where UMA effectively would come in and, um, provide a price save, but also give a dispute period where people can challenge that price. And by doing that, you kind of bring in that idea of, you know, slowing down the process a little bit and then allowing anybody, um, complete permissionless, um, to come in and basically dispute the process and then pause and let everyone kind of assess and then, and then vote to resolve it. Um, so I think I think many many cases it's possible that TradFi could use something like this to kind of ease themselves into the DeFi space if by kind of not having that recourse. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin, do you you know? And again, this is just just a, a blue sky ask. Do you see you know DeFi and TradFi you know merging um, in the near future where it's kind of they're they're one and the same? Uh, I wouldn't say they're one and the same. Like I, I would definitely see parts of it merging together. Um, and I, I would not think that, I mean, I would not think that DeFi would completely replace TradFi. Um, I mean, they're, they're just kind of different. They're, there's aspects of it that just are, are different, I think. Um, when, you, when you have, um, when you're transacting trustlessly, I think it's not, it's, not, um, it's not for everybody, right? I don't think everybody wants to transact trustlessly. And so there will be some subset of transactions or activities that people will prefer in the DeFi way, and there will be some activity that people prefer in the TradFi way, right? And there's just certain assets that you probably might not want to put on the chain, like like I don't know, maybe it's like your house or something. Right? It's it's like they're, 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 those types of transactions are very different, right? And there may be some more personal kind of aspects of it uh, there yeah. as well. I, I agree. There's there's sometimes that it's okay to slow down a transaction. Um, and it's great that we can have you know almost instantaneous settlements on blockchain. Um, but when the TradFi version of that is sometimes days. Um, 
you know, moving that to hours and at least giving everyone a chance to confirm, is this correct? Is this not correct? You know, because um, you're right, it is it is final and there is no dispute. Um, you know, blockchain uh, Oracle that's going to go back and undo anything once it's been done. Um, so I, I really like that that perspective of, of sometimes we just need a little bit of time. Um, you know, I, I always say blockchain is designed for computers, a little less for humans. Um, and that's where we need to slow down and make sure that we're, you know, we're integrating ourselves into the system appropriately. That's right. a, I mean, that's a great jumping off point for like, you know, there are so many participants in DeFi and I don't know that all that many of like the average participants, non-builders really appreciate the important role that oracles play in, in uh, well, throughout crypto, really. Um, can you take a sec and just walk us through, you, you know, you mentioned your optimistic oracle how is it different to other established oracles and what are the sort of pros and cons? Yeah, um, definitely. I, and I think yeah, people don't really understand um, what, what's kind of happening in the background and how do we settle these uh, smart contracts um, and what are the trade-offs of these designs. So I think most people are familiar with an oracle in the sense of um, something like a chain link. You know, you, you would imagine almost like a price feed constantly being pumped into the blockchain. And most people are familiar with that and they would use that to settle their contracts. Um, and it works fairly well for things like a liquid uh, asset, like imagine like a Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, you know, it's very transparent. There's a lot of exchanges that trade it. So it's easy to bring in that price. And it's even, that price is also even on-chain as well in, in many of the uh, centralized exchanges. Um, but if you start thinking, like if you start looking at other products and, and you want to really expand um, Web3 and, and DeFi, uh, to be more comparable to the actual financial world, then you need something a little bit more robust, right? Um, so like Chainlink wouldn't be able to feed in um, weather data or like sports games uh, results that easily. Um, they could find some kind of janky way of getting it and then maybe having it very centralized and maintained by a certain, by a certain uh, person, but it's not really kind of decentralized in a sense. Whereas if you have an Oracle like Umo, which we call an optimistic Oracle, we can do certain things like this. And how the Oracle works is effectively, uh, it's optimistic in the sense that we assume that when someone proposes that price, so anyone can propose a price or a result for a contract, we assume that they are correct and that and they're right. Uh, but we have a, a dispute period, uh, say it's one hour, two hours, even a day, where someone could come in and just say, well, that's, that's not correct. And I want to dispute it. And then once that happens, we actually take it to a vote. And then our UMA token holders will all come in and they will all vote to figure out, you know, what the actual result was. And you know, all, it's all economically incentivized. So the person who is proposing will have to put up a bond. The person who is disputing will also put up a bond. And these bonds could all be um, adjusted um, in order to suit that purpose of, of that contract. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think this is, this is the, kind of like a different way of thinking about an Oracle. And I think that this allows you to bring in a lot more different assets and prices. Uh, but also it gives you a lot more precision, right? Instead of setting a, a price date every five minutes on the blockchain, you could say, I want a very specific price at this second, right? Because it's, say it's an options contract or it's a derivatives contract. It's very like sensitive to the price. So you can be very precise in terms of what you want. Um, so, so I think it's a, it's a very different, different kind of uh, way of um, looking at Oracle. Like the one downside to it is the fact that it's dispute period. And, and there's ways of managing around it, but now you can't do this quick finality of of, this, of selling things right away, but there are certainly assets that you that they don't really care about that. But there are certain things that do. For example, like liquidations 
on in DeFi would very much care about it if you want to do like atomic transactions where there's a bot that's going to be liquidating this person and they're and they're getting flash loans in. So everything needs to happen in one in one kind of um, block. Uh, so stuff like that would be difficult to do using Ruma. Um, but things that can take a little longer time and are a little bit more complex can be used with Ruma. Yeah, and this, and we're still really early days. I mean, when you were given a, some Bitcoin back in 2013, you, I mean, it was probably cool, but there was not much use case or or you know real world utility there. Um, and then when you got involved, you know, kind of from a full time perspective in, in early 2020, um, you were probably thinking like, "Hey, we're mainstream. Like any day now, here we go, and here comes this bull run." And now here we are, um, still looking at kind of a world that I would say is is very similar to 1994, 1995. Um, that there's a big group of us that are really passionate about this and a lot of people that have you know dipped a toe in um, but still aren't you know believers and, and we haven't seen the large institutions uh, really show up yet which is which is who we need yeah I, I mean I think that's exactly right and that's exactly you're describing exactly how I felt in 2013 I, I got this I thought it was cool and I just you know I didn't really know what to do with it right it sat there in my coinbase account at the time but 2020 like it really all clicked like as being a person in finance, it just all made sense. Like I can understand what this technology is used for, but then like ten years down the line, we could be using blockchain for something completely different. Like we we would we've, we we haven't even thought about all the uses for it. And it's exactly your analogy with the internet, where you know yeah ninety four ninety five we didn't know that people are, and our kids would be on social media and doing TikTok and stuff like that. And that'd be the thing, right? We could we could have shut it all down right then and saved ourselves a lot of a lot of a lot of problems, um, but but let's go ahead and, and, and pivot now because you know across is amazing um, you know and I, and I know you're really proud of it so if you wouldn't mind let, give us that kind of you know longer elevator pitch um, about what it is the problems it solves and how it integrates into everything we just talked about with oracles. Yeah, definitely. Um, so across is um, an optimistic cross chain bridge, and we uh, or the protocol effectively facilitates uh, bridging of assets between um, different L2s and L1s. And uh, it solves a problem where, you know, uh, there's, a, there's, there's great scaling solutions out there right now and, and soon, to be, soon to get better, but there's some kind of trade-offs. Um, a perfect example would be, say, optimism in, Ar in Arbitrum. Um, they're optimistic rollups. Um, they provide lower cost for transactions and faster speeds. Um, when you bring your assets there, it's quite easy to bring your assets over. Um, it doesn't take too long. But when you want to bring your assets back onto mainnet, then there's a seven-day kind of delay. And uh, you know, for most people, seven days is quite a long time. You know, especially when everyone's familiar with with instantaneous kind of transactions and 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 and, and working the blockchain. So bridges basically solve problems like that, where now you need to somehow. Um, allow users to get their funds back there faster, right? And what what happens most of the time is it ends up being more of a financial problem, right? You know, you you have someone who has some idle assets sitting on L1 Ethereum. You have a person on Arbitrum who wants to get their assets back onto L1. So then they're like, okay, let's let's that's like a match. Well, why don't we just why don't we just kind of do a trade here? I'll take your assets on Arbitrum and bridge them back myself. I'll lend you my assets for seven days, and you can take them right away on L1. So that's that's basically the bridging idea. So it, it could work quite simply as, as you may say, like the three of us in this group, just talk to each other and say, I, I know Jay, I know, I know Alan, and, and we could just do that. And we can just send money to each other's wallet. But it doesn't really work when we don't know 
all the people in the world and everyone wants to do this with each other, right? So that's, that becomes a problem. Like, how do we trustlessly do this? And there are different solutions out there where, you know, people would use validators to kind of um, say like, hey, well, if, if Alan has deposited into this box in Arbitrum uh, and I can validate that it's done, then you can pick it up in L1. And, and there's solutions like there's solutions where people can like lock assets up in, in a box and, and then that converts it to a different asset. And so there's always different solutions. And I, and I think that they all have um, some kind of trade-offs with it. Some of them might be a little easier and simpler to understand, but like, for example, validators, you need some kind of uh, number, number of signers to basically validate that it's, that it's okay. But what if these signers like are all are, are hacked or, or a portion of them are hacked? Or where they're all centralized, like you know, who who's running these these validators? Um, so I think that that's some of these concerns out there. And I think for us, you know, when we're thinking about this problem, we um, immediately thought about our Oracle um, because there's a good application for this for this Oracle. Now we can we can instead of relying, say, on like I mean, some some um, leverage bridges with relying on like twenty to twenty five validators, which are generally people that are concentrating in the group, we could just rely on anybody in the world to come in and dispute it, right? So it kind of flips the, flips the problem around. Like instead of having 20, 25 people validating, we actually have anybody in the world disputing, right? Mm. And we always assume it's right. So what, So how the process would work was that would be like, okay, now Alan deposits um, his ETH on Arbitrum and he says, I've deposited, let me pick it up on, uh, on mainnet. And we will say, okay, wait, wait, we, how about you wait uh, an hour and let, let us kind of validate that, right? And or let us, let, us, let, us, let everyone look at it and see if, see if it's true. And if anyone believes it's not true, they can dispute it. And that stops the process. And they say, well, I never put it in there. And, and so he's not getting this money, right? So that's kind of how the process works. Um, we do, obviously, it's a, little, it's a little bit more complex than that, but we do have um, relayers, for example, in between to help speed up the process more so people can even front um, money for say that one hour to get the process going even faster. And it effectively it becomes this instantaneous bridging um, where people can basically move assets from Arbitrum to L1 or, or back and forth or, or other, other destinations. Um, that's basically the, the idea of how an optimistic bridge works. Yeah, so so let's take a second, and I always, you know, the 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 audience is sometimes very technical and understands what a bridge is, and and other times, you know, w let's go take a second and, and explain what's happening here. So when you have various, you know, level zeros, level ones, and level twos, you know, they they really are just running in their own chain. Um, and, and Kevin and Alan, please correct me as I oversimplify this. Um, and so very similar to this is the early issues that we had with email uh, way back in the days with CompuServe and Prodigy prior to kind of cross, uh, you could only send emails like in, inside CompuServe, inside Prodigy, like you're kind of stuck inside your uh, your little ecosystem, which is a lot of what it used to be kind of an Ethereum. Either you were in Ethereum or you were in you know a various other chain, and you were kind of stuck there until the bridge until uh, third parties uh, like Cross came in and, and created bridges. Um, and so with that, it's entirely opened up this, this ecosystem of, you know, somebody may say, look, I love uh, storing all of my assets and my financials on, on Ethereum mainnet, um, but I want to do all of my kind of gaming over on, you know, a different chain. And so, but that still means you have to bring assets back and forth um, in a variety of ways. And um, this is extremely complicated to do 
because there's not a week that goes by, there's not a major bridge that's hacked, um, which is, again, one of the major vulnerability points of this entire ecosystem. So did I oversimplify or did we did we hit it on a little bit? Anything to add? I, I mean, I think that's that's the key. Um, I think those are the key kind of issues that are there that they that stick out out there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a difficult problem. Um, and people have highlighted this many times. Um, and there, there's definitely been hacks that have highlighted this issue. Um, yeah, and, and it, it comes down to like you know, the bridge design and the security kind of assumptions that are being made for all of this. Can you? Well, and I think, uh, you know, oh. maybe you could speak to that a little bit in terms of how has the design and the desire to focus mostly on L2 to L1, um, like what? What are the design choices there? Why did you make those design choices? And and also, I guess design choices around capital efficiency as well. Right. That you know that that kind of differentiate from a security and capital efficiency point of view the uh, across uh, protocol. Uh, yeah, definitely. So so what we've we've generally focused on um, everything within the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, so most of our our destinations are effectively you know L one. L1s, L2s, uh, they all inherit um, a lot of the security or the security features of um, mainnet Ethereum. Um, you know, with some of the hacks that have, the bigger hacks have, that have occurred, um, a lot of them were doing L1, L1 types transfers, for example. Um, and, um, you know, some of them effectively will require you, say, wrapping that asset, um, let's say it's Ethereum, uh, with the, you know, effectively the Bombsic, the bridging entity. And then having that asset, uh, that wrapped asset, be on the other L1. So when you do something like that, when it's kind of wrapped in that way, you're effectively um, inheriting the security of that bridge, right? And if that bridge gets compromised, then all these assets could get drained. And that's occurred, like for example, with wormhole, where you know that effectively happened. I mean, people once once that was compromised, all the assets were drained, and everyone who was holding that ETH Solana Solana ETH were basically affected by it, right? Um, so, th- so we've tried to avoid some of this, um, some of these L1 L1 transfers. And it's not saying that we won't attempt to uh, build our bridge to do, to do that in the future. But there are definitely these kind of issues where there may be the only kind of representation of ETH is this kind of wrapped ETH of some sort in in that space. Um, so that's one thing that we've done. Is we've we've focused primarily on the Ethereum ecosystem for now. Um, the other thing that, that that's kind of interesting that we've done is most bridges, like I think Alan was alluding to, most bridges will have multiple um, liquidity pools uh, on, on each destination. So, if, for example, if, if we have a bridge that serves um, Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygon, there would actually effectively be liquidity pools in each of these destinations, and and it would be up to these liquidity providers to provide enough liquidity in each area so that when people start moving assets around there would be enough assets in each place, right? And obviously the prices would change back and forth and you know, it could create some arbitrage. We, we thought that that was actually very inefficient. And a lot of these are using AMMs and, and there's a lot of slippage. So we thought that really, like we, as we started earlier, it's much more of a borrowing and lending problem where people need to borrow your assets for um, seven days or maybe for an hour. And, and why have these separate pools and instead of just having one pool? So we affected a one pool that's sitting in the most secure area, which is uh, L1 mainnet. And we 
allow transfers to go to different areas. But but as these assets start to move, we will have um, we have like the bots in our relayers that allow help to basically rebalance these assets over time. Um, so that, that's kind of a design choice. It's a security and a capital efficiency design choices that we have. And it kind of sets us apart a little bit differently from other bridges. How hard is this problem to solve? Um, I mean, to, affect, to, to solve it very well, it's definitely hard. And also, like, you're also exposed. You're, you're, you're exposing yourself all the time, right, to, to potential new innovations and in how you could get hacked or, or as, as you grow as well. And you know a lot of these a lot of these hacks occurred during during upgrades. Like if you're upgrading your system and and you've missed something, right? And now there's a vulnerability, even though everything was was audited before. Like then it just exposes the whole system. So it's it's very it is definitely a difficult kind of problem. And and as it grows, like you find better solutions, but you're also exposing yourself each time you're providing a better solution for better capital efficiency or, or more routes. Um, so it's it's an ongoing kind of battle, and it's a real grind, I think, for, for a lot of people in this bridge space. And, and you're, so and you're managing. Oh, oh, keep, keep going on. I was gonna I was gonna change like I was say how, you know how did it evolve? Like obviously you you know Risk Labs as part of UMA um, must have conceptualized it, and then can you speak a little bit to the evolution of it, the evolution of the UMA community, and then and across community. I guess how much did like the cross community end up gaining its own traction as a as an entity to push forward the the project? Um, yeah, I, I think with with Uma, there's one thing that you know I would I would kind of criticize ourselves on. Like we we do a good job of thinking up concepts and and ideas, and with an Oracle like with this, like this optimistic Oracle, you could build anything. So you can, there's like all these different ideas. We, we start off a lot to do with synthetic assets and um, people using that to kind of create interesting risks. But we never really built the project, another separate project full on using Oracle. So a lot of times we would have the Kuba concept and we and we try to hand it off to friends or partners in the space. And it never really got to where we wanted it to be. And with Across, we kind of, like I would say we, we kind of started off in that, in that direction. And... And as we start picking up traction, we start understanding this product was a really good product. We said we can't let this fail. Like we need to ensure that this project does well, and and this could really showcase um, Uma and also um, an independent project on its own. So I think we really kind of dedicated a lot more resources to this. We effectively have a separate team from uh, from the same foundation that runs Uma or that, that serves Uma. We have uh, about thirteen, actually fourteen people. On this team that are dedicated uh, on 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 this on the cross project, um, so it's it's kind of involved in that way where it's just very much a full on project on its own. I would say our community members have also they have first kind of migrated there to kind of support across, and now it's it's got its own community members. It's kind of doing its own thing. Um, there's there's a group of people that they're supporting it, building dashboards and proposing ideas. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to see, but then you can still see the connection between the two communities for sure. Now, now in traditional TradFi, which let's go back and talk about this, <clears throat> you know, there's lots of times that there, that a bank is going to send funds to a different, to a different, um, currency or do lots of things. And these take days, weeks. I mean, when, when, you know, if any of you guys understand payroll, like you will start the payroll process four to seven days early. 
just to get money moving, even if you're if you're all domestic. Like these are huge problems that exist. Um, and Kevin's over Kevin's over here saying like, yeah, like we might slow it down by like an hour. Like we're talking about a like going from horse and buggy to like, you know, a, a, a modern vehicle, a modern car. Like there's huge problems that have never been thought of because if you, if the horse and buggy kind of run off the road, you're not going to get in too much trouble real quickly. Cause you can, whoa, 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 let's stop and, and back this thing up. You're going a hundred miles per hour down the road in a modern vehicle. And, and you touch the, you know, the curb, like things are going to happen very quickly and fall off. So you know, Kevin, the other side of this is when we're talking TradFi, like there is no bank upgrade that's done in anything less than years. <laughs> and you guys are, are upgrading things so fast. How do you manage, you know, making sure that you're moving and, and, and plugging the holes in, in kind of in the code? Um, but you're also not exposing yourself, as you said before, like how, how is the cycle, how deep is that cycle? Um, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of coordination involved in all this. Um, you know, we have a team of people that that are that have a lot of experience in in the you know software development space, um, in product management space. Um, so you know, there's like checklists upon checklists um, that they go through, and and we're making sure that every part works. Lots of testing that needs to go through. Um, you know, I'd say like some of the front end aspects of it may not be as uh, severe as in terms of security issues. So. But like anything with smart contract related, like that's very extensive testing. And we have dedicated smart contract engineers that would do that work. And then we get audits on that as well. Um, so yeah, so there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very different type of um, kind of process. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an engineer myself, but when you, when you think about it in, in the way they describe it, you know, there's always this idea that, you know, you should, you should build, always uh, build fast and break, break things. Like you can't really do that in the same way <laughs> in Web three. Like when you break things, you know, lots of people lose a lot of money. Um, so it's it's very different that way. Like you can't just keep iterating. Like you have to like build and be fairly confident of what you have, and and then release that. And then when you build the next one, there's a there's a huge process planning it. Like the front end may look different. Like it may be cool things and make things a lot better for the user. But in the back end, like you know, it it needs to take time to build. What, what's the, you know, if we just go out, you know, three, four, five years, uh, you know, it's hard, hard to kind of see and understand anything more than six months in, in crypto space. But, but what's the goal of how this should look, you know, in the future? Um, yeah, people always talk about it. it's, it's a, it's a multi-chain universe kind of, kind of idea. And I, I very much believe that's, it's a huge possibility. Agreed. And what would you, what, it would kind of look like to me it would be you have um a place where people want to keep their assets safely and that may be ethereum mainnet you keep most of your assets there um and that kind of becomes like the underlying bank settlement layer and then you have all these different um chains or or uh, l2s or maybe l3s in the future that have different purposes maybe it's for gaming as you said earlier or it's very focused on like trading or or some kind of uh, other DeFi applications and then people can move assets to these different locations and then and utilize them but i think what ends up happening more is that it may not even be like in three to five years down the line the average person may not even know the difference so like when they think about gaming when they think about banking they just see kind of like their websites and they kind of go in and they do the thing 
but in the background, all these assets are moving. It's kind of the same way that you know we think about, okay, well, we want to buy something with a credit card, we want to pay it off with our bank. Uh, and I go play a, a game somewhere and you know put in my credit card there. Like, we don't know what's going on in the background, but I think these bridges may end up being that background and, and that infrastructure. So there may be, instead of like these individuals right now kind of using our front end to move assets around, there may be this process where um, these larger kind of almost like institutions or DAOs that are funding assets back and forth in, in large size, size, like in large size, in, in some kind of frequency. Uh, and they may be the only users of the bridges where the, the front end users or the, the retail users themselves are only seeing the front end. And that's it. You know, and I, I absolutely love where we're at in Web3 right now because we're all in here playing with these protocols. We're playing and understanding. You're, you're building them. Alan, you're, you're, you're breaking them all the time. And, you know, really, we have such a nuanced view of this. Um, but in a few years, it, truly, I believe, exactly as you said, no one's even going to have one care how this operates in the background. This is all going to be operated by, you know, various levels of AI computers, you know, that are just reading and writing and spitting out, you know, what are the results. Um, so to have kind of that knowledge right now of saying like, no, no, you don't understand. Back in the day, I actually had to set up my bridge, get the, get everything ready and then, and then make the steps to move across. Um, you know, we, we send emails every day. We have no idea where it's going or what the server it's going to hit. Is it Azure, S3? Is it Microsoft? Like, Nobody, nobody matters. It just goes. And that's, is that the future you're describing? That's just, where's it going and, and what the back, what it all kind of happened fluidly in the background? Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Um, and yeah, and, and maybe it, it maybe happens sooner than we think, but I, I definitely feel like that's the direction we're moving. Um, I think some of it's already happening, right, Kev? Like you're already seeing some of this, like with people playing with relayers and kind yeah. of, I think we had a discussion about that once. It was really interesting to me that, you know, there are, as like an average user in DeFi, you don't see what's even like one layer below. And one layer below, there are these roles that can be played like relayers in the across protocol or like some of the MEV stuff that's going on um, where, you know, there's a degree of sophistication, you know, that, that sits just below where you can start to see some of these movements happening at scale where people are realizing efficiencies and arbitraging. And uh, and I think that that's kind of like an indicator of where we're going, considering what you were just mentioning, Kev. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, people can get involved in different ways in terms of using that ecosystem. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think there's, yeah, I think right now that you can, you can choose a level where you don't even just notice anything and it's everything just so seamless and everything just moves for sure. And then you start digging and you're like, wait, what? What's going on here? Wow, that's okay. Interesting. Um, anyway, um, also, congratulations. Uh, I guess today was a big day for you guys. Um, you kind of uh, unveiled your tokenomic model. And one thing I always thought was really neat about you guys is you have always had kind of very different models or like very unique and innovative kind of alignment of, and I think kind of understanding of game theory, you know, with Uma, you, you talked before about, you have like, you have to put up a bond in order to, uh, you know, dispute. Um, and then you have Uma holders who are incentivized to vote and vote correctly. So it's a really like, there are interesting models around what you guys have done with Uma. Maybe take a minute and describe to us the, the model and some of your thinking around it in terms of across. 
Uh, yeah. So, so today we, um, I think the community has known that we, we want to release a token. We want to basically establish the DAO and, and have the community really drive the, the next steps. Um, so we've announced it today, uh, or more formally provide those numbers so people can go onto across and, and check, um, for what their airdrop allocation is, you know, what we're thinking about, um, uh, the token going forward. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, uh, so that's, it's very exciting for the community at this point. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely some components of it that we've added that are a little different than, than other kind of, uh, uh token drops. I think, I think we, we, um, are definitely focused on um, kind of giving giving the user um, a lot. A lot well, sorry, the standard things would be giving we're giving users a lot of power to control the parameters of the bridge. Um, so in the future, they will they'll be more easily able to kind of vote to change uh, adding assets, um, adding new destinations, um, and then there's a couple of things that are quite unique. They kind of use the UMA kind of oracle. Um, that we're thinking about is like one thing is is the idea of, of optimistic governance with the token mm. and what this is is um a problem that we've, we've definitely noticed in in our space where most uh DAOs, um you know they're decentralized but really the um the majority of the assets are controlled by a multi-sig mm. and that the project team basically controls this multi-sig um so even though token holders could be on snapshot voting and saying, okay, well, we want to, we want to like you know, send these assets to this entity to pay for whatever the project team actually has to use the multi-sig and then sign and send those assets. So it's really not as decentralized as you think in some ways. And obviously decentralization has, has varying degrees. Uh, and I think this problem was really highlighted with the whole um, kind of situation with Rivari and Fuse. Uh, the, the fuse pools, um, so uh, Faye, sorry, Faye and Rari, and it was, it was dealing with the fuse pool hacks. And so a lot of the victims of, that, of the hacks um, wanted to have um, money repaid back to them. And there was a vote that occurred. They said, yes, we should pay these hack victims. And there's a certain amount of money set aside for this. And the project team took a long time to kind of do anything. They just didn't, they never did it. They never dispersed the funds. And then they decide, oh, well, it's been a month and a half, two months. Let's, let's vote again on this. Let's, this is, these are the new terms now, but the people are like, well, we already voted for this, right? It should have been done. Is it no, no, we're just going to vote again, right? And then they voted for something else. And I think the res resolution was still okay at the end because people were all complaining. But, but if they were done in a way where, um, we're forced to move these, these funds and we're forced to pay back these people, then it would have been much more decentralized and the token holders actually did would have really had the power and i think with optimist governance is something we're we've, we're building um and it's i believe it's close to being done and we're we're in coordination with uh, snapshot um and um you know it's, it's been an idea to talk about where effectively you can have um a smart uh, contract wallet where anybody can propose a transaction in it but anybody could stop a transaction during a dispute window. And this dispute window could be much longer, it could be 24 hours, it could be even a week, say. Um, and then people can vote and have very specific things in their snapshot um, uh, votes. And token holders can vote on snapshot. Say like, say that it could be like repay the hack victims. These are all their addresses. Please send X amount of tokens to each one, right? And then if the vote passes, then now it's validated that it's passed. And anybody could go and propose this transaction 
on the smart contract wallet and then send those funds out. And But if someone tried to do something malicious and say, okay, well, actually, I'm going to send all the money to my own wallet, then someone would, would stop the process and dispute it. Right? But if someone did the correct thing and sent it to all the wallets listed on that, on that uh, proposal, then nobody stops it and it goes through. So now you have a way of kind of enforcing um, token holder votes without the project team kind of controlling them all the same. So that's something like we, it's not going to be in place immediately, but it is something that we will want to have for across. And I think this will be very powerful in terms of controlling parameters, controlling the treasury and, and everything in, in that system. How much fun are you having really rewriting the rules um, on finance and, and and all this because what you're saying, I mean, it, we we've heard it time and time again. It makes it, it makes perfect sense. You know, de- decentralized autonomous organization should be exactly that. But you're right. Most of the time, the technology is not quite there. You can vote, but the vote is just it's a thing registered on chain. It requires someone to go do something. I mean, how much fun are you having just theorizing the way this should go? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's amazing, and I, and I think the, the main reason why we can do all this is because of the oracle. And, I, and it's been, it's like, I would say the last two years, it's, it's almost been a little bit of a struggle and, and um, a joy at the same time, you know, joy being like, you can think of all these crazy things to do and all these great things you can build with Oracle, but then focusing our resources and time to find those few things to kind of really bootstrap and jumpstart it has been a challenge. So we, you could see we're being pulled in many directions a lot of times where some teams want us to do this and some teams don't want to do that. Um, but now we're just trying to, really just nail down the ones we really want to work on. And I think something like this, I think it's quite important. I think it's important for the entire um, entire um, ecosystem and entire community to have something like this. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's very exciting. Um, we're effectively just replacing legal contracts with code all the time. I think. Absolutely. Kevin, I mean, fabulous really to hear everything you guys are working on. You know, how much you're also really looking forward into where this asset class should go and trying to solve problems that that you know most people aren't even thinking about right now um, and that's that execution side of things you know for the for the tiny amount of people that have been misconvenienced by something like a, a vote not being forward through um, you want to make sure that these are things that are ingrained in all DAOs going forward so I love that um, that being said, you know, there's still a lot of work that you guys are doing on, on across. You've got your token. Um, what's the next steps that you guys have going on right now for for across? Um, so, so the tokens announced um, in, I'm guessing three weeks or so, we should be launching this token. Um, that is the plan, um, and and it's going to be exciting. I, I think because we want to use, in addition to giving people the power to control across and to have ownership of it, we also want it to be a way to grow the um the entire project in, in, in the protocol um so there's going to be um some interesting incentivization programs um we already have a referral program that's that's happening um which has been quite successful in getting new users um and it's kind of taking you know us being the trad five kind of people we just thought it made sense like you know if we can if you can refer your friends to use a bridge or you can um get a get a project integration to use a bridge i think people should be rewarded for that um, so that's that's something that's ongoing, and and it's it's people will be able to claim their tokens for that. Um, but the interesting thing that that we really want to work on is is this idea called uh, reward locking. And I think you know Alan's very familiar with um, and, and yourself too with, with just like liquidity mining and, and how how people reward in that space. Um, so we want we still need liquidity to, for us to grow our bridge. Um, but I find that you know one of the challenges in this in the space uh, for liquidity mining is it's, it's very, um, 
mercenary. You know, people are there for the money. Um, they're they're in and out, right? You know, they they're not really committed to keeping their funds there. And then there's definitely mechanisms out there that try and encourage people to lock tokens and and, and try and keep them in that system. But in the day, it's, it's a very short term kind of um, process where you know people are just throwing more and more rewards and bribing people to kind of be be uh, providing liquidity. Um, so the idea of reward locking for us is that we think that people who um, are staked longer, who are committed to staying with the project and not selling the, the tokens that they earn, should be rewarded a higher return. Um, and so what we've created this mechanism where um, everyone can start off um, providing liquidity um, and staking their liquidity uh, shares, and they will earn a return. And but the each day that you you're you stay there and you don't claim your rewards, then your return starts to go up. So we effectively have a multiplier where from zero to hundred days, your multiplier can go from one to three. So the longer you stay there, then the higher this this multiplier will go and the faster you earn your rewards. But once you claim your rewards, that's a signal that okay, you probably want to claim and get out and, and sell some tokens, then your multiplier would reset back to one. So it's a very like um, we're not we're not doing anything where we're forcing anyone to lock tokens like say in Curve where you're locking it for for four years or whatever. You know, people can choose what they want to do, but if they stay longer and they don't claim their rewards, then their return rate starts to go up. So I think it's it's another kind of fun thing to try out, and I think it really rewards the correct people in your system. And, and I find to me like I, the, the big thing it's not about just the money and the returns. I find that the longer a person is engaged in your system, I feel the, the more chances that they will actually become a community member and they'll actually understand what you're building and actually want to participate. So I think by having that little incentive for them to kind of have some skin in the game and, and not just be um, farming and dumping your tokens all the time, then they might actually watch their your token price and they might actually join your Discord then they might actually want to contribute in different ways and understand what the product does. Um, so really excited to try it. And I think um, it'd be something novel that, I mean, I think we've had other projects talk to us about it too. Um, and they want to actually try and use, use this as well. So it's something that's not been announced, but um, it's been in the background and there's definitely uh, people in the, in, the, in the system kind of know about it. I, I, I'm going to give you credit right now for coining what I now refer to as the liquidity mercenary um, category. <laughs> and I'm going to be, there's going to be t-shirts and everything else made up uh, with that. Terminology. So I, I love that, Kevin. Absolutely fabulous. Um, really, really exciting. And, and again, I love the, the word that you threw in there, which is we're trying it. And I think that that's the point we're at now. It's like, um, there's no certainty in, in anything Web3, um, but but this makes sense. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. So, so thank you for that. Um, Alan, Bring, bring us home here. What, what's uh, after kind of everything we've, we've said and heard with, with Kevin today and also everything we're watching in this asset class, you know, what, what are you, uh, how are you feeling today? You know, I think a lot of people get really down in a, in a bear market. Um, but actually I find it quite exciting. Like, you know, in a bull market, not only do you have this situation where like people just kind of throw money at the market and stuff goes up and everybody thinks that they're like, you know, tech geniuses and, you know, most of them probably really aren't, um, you know, but you have also projects which are ridiculous that are, you know, increasing in value and, in, and are writing these narratives. And yet in the, in the bear markets, you know, you come across teams like across and UMA 
that you know Uma has been around for a long time. Across is newer, um, but they're really like pioneering new ideas and new constructs and new technology where they clearly have a vision of like how things are going to look in the future and this being sort of a backbone piece of technology. Um, and that to me is like the really exciting part. Um, and you can use that as, you know, person in the space to look at like, well, this is a team that's doing great things and, and, you know, and, and trying to understand, well, when the next bull market does come, what are those kinds of projects and spaces that will really look interesting um, as an investor, as a community member, as a whatever. Um, and there's there's a massive amount of new stuff out there. There's like whatever areas people building on soulbound, the idea of soulbound tokens or um, real world assets on chain or, um, you know, GameFi. Uh, there are tons of different little niches, but it's actually almost more obvious, I think, in a bear market to see some of that really exciting, interesting innovation like like Kevin and the team are up to over at Across. Yeah, and, and I'm going to echo really, Alan, a lot of what you said, and, and Kevin, you as well, that that there's a lot of people building a lot of things, and there's so many cool things that every single day I'm being, you know, like, there's this, there's that, there's there's this new level two, there's this new level zero, and all these things. Um, but the problem is, it's like highways to nowhere. And so without, you know, what, you know, the optimistic oracle of UMA, and without kind of what Across is building of actually being able to go from one of these chains to the next, it's, it's just a series of islands of which no one is ever going to actually be able to explore. Explore um, because there's only so many ways you can on you know on, so many on ramps. I mean, it's really hard to, to get money into uh, the blockchain, and it really shouldn't be. And so you know, with having proper bridges, with having proper you know oracles and price structures and everything else, you know, the safety level just goes up, and, and the confidence level needs to go up a little bit. Um, so really, uh, Kevin, I, I absolutely thank you for today for everything you, you've done. Um, and, and said, how, what's the best way uh, if people are interested in learning more, they want to join your community? Uh, what's the best way to find you guys? Yeah, we're on Twitter, we're on um, Discord, but on Twitter, it's easiest to find us there probably at Across Protocol, and then at uh, Uma Protocol. Yeah, those are the easiest ways to find us. Love it. And and Alan, if people are sick of being their own, you know, DeFi DGen and, and want to get Golden Pair involved to kind of take a look at the, the disaster portfolios that they put together for themselves, what's the best place to find you guys? Yeah, you can reach me at Alan, A-L-L-A-N at goldenpair.capital is the best way to reach me. Love it, love it. Um, thank you guys, Why Whales. This is uh, Alan Matheson uh, as a co-host and, and Kevin from Across and UMA. So thank you guys and we'll catch you guys next time. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbach, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. 
an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.